welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. This is the Chit Chat Money Investing Power Hour. Uh, We come on every Thursday at three o'clock Eastern time, 12 o'clock Pacific. Uh, The rule is there are no rules. Uh, There are no notes either. So uh, this is a broad topic or broad discussion. We can cover anything. uh, And the only rule is we can't have any notes. So uh, what have you guys been up to this week? Do you guys have any uh, thing to talk about? Crypto blowups. That was that's been fun to watch. Coinbase is not blowing up, but kind of imploded. Um, I'd say down fifty percent in a week is a blow up. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I don't know, Ian. Any thoughts? Like, I'm kind of. It's been a jumbled week. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd say it's it's been a weird week for sure. Um, between the crypto stuff, there is also one of my smaller holdings. I think it's about a $3 billion market cap. There was news out that it was, um, it was getting, it had won like a $2 billion um, award basically for uh, one of the other companies had been, this other company had been like spying on it and all this corporate espionage and stealing their technology and stuff. And so um, not that that's really matters that much, but it was just one of those, it was just a weird week. Like you were saying between everything that was going on and it felt like, you know, it feels like everything you pull, you pull up the brokerage account and everything's down five, 10%. And then maybe by the end of the day, it's, you know, only down for three or 4%, or maybe it's down, you know, 10 or 15%. So, um, yeah, just a weird week. One of those weeks that I kind of put the blinders on a little bit and just focus on some other things. Chaotic week for sure. So much earnings too. Earnings just crowds everything. Uh, Disney reported. They had good subscriber growth. Take that Netflix. Uh, what a yeah! I, people don't care anymore though. <laughs> they don't. If something is not knocking it out of the park, that it's it's going down ten percent. Um, I mean, I guess first topic maybe that came to mind is the crypto stuff. Coinbase with that new disclosure, and I didn't actually read the report, so people can correct me if it was not a bad report. But I guess bad. they're seeing. You know, users down, revenue down, and they had to make that disclosure about how customers' assets may be used as collateral in a bankruptcy filing. Which my immediate thought was, if if my brokers did that, I'm out immediately. And then we had the stablecoin blow up, which I think all three of us—I'm speaking for all three of us—are no experts on that stuff, but I believe it was a forty billion dollar stablecoin that went to zero. Um, I know Ryan probably was not following that at all, but Ian, were you following that? Uh, the, the Terra USD thing? Just a little bit. I, I can't speak very intel- intelligently about it, but I think it's, I think this was probably before we were doing these podcasts, but um, I think we were talking about this a few months ago and just how shady some of the stuff going on with these stable coins was that 
you know, that, and I, this has been in the news for a while. It's not like we were breaking any news on that, but just that it, it's so um, opaque, right? You don't, you can't see what's really, you know, <laughs> what these stable coins are really, what the assets are that are backing them. And um, I think, I think this was bound to happen in one of them, right? When there's, when there's uh, some of the, the shenanigans that were going on, um, you know, it just, it, it leads to situations like this, right? Where when, when things seem too good to be true, um, a lot of times they are. I think we're learning that a lot of these speculative securities were smoke and mirrors and that they're also fairly interrelated. Um, if I'm not mistaken, both the stablecoin blowups uh, caused a bit of a huge dip in Bitcoin as well. Yeah. I don't know. That could be correlated to something else, but yeah, I think I agree that those sort of blowups, the leverage in the crypto system can kind of uh, all go to one, I guess, and everything moves in the same direction. Do Okay. Here's a question. Can we say that Bitcoin is not a hedge against inflation now? Yes. We can I would say, say that. Ryan, Ryan's <laughs> smiling there. I know Ryan's a hater as, as along with me. Uh, how could it possibly were, be? How could it how in any way could it be a hedge against inflation? It was a leading question, so I agree with you. But Ian, what what are your thoughts? Uh, I would just say I think the the you know, I, I would call myself kind of crypto neutral probably compared to most people that I'm not I don't you know, I'm not a big cheerleader, but I'm also, I probably wouldn't classify myself as a hater just on the category in general. But I think that the, the jury is still out on whether Bitcoin over the long term is going to be an inflation hedge. Um, obviously, in the short term, it's not a direct, it's not like inversely correlated with, um, you know, inflation or the dollar or stuff in the short term. But I think, I think, I think you could probably still make a case that over the long term, it, it might be an inflation hedge depending on. Um, you know, what we see, I don't know. I think, I think ultimately that depends on its utility though, right? If, if Bitcoin doesn't do anything except serve as a hedge to, or a supposed hedge to inflation, then I don't think it can be a hedge to inflation because there's no, it just, it doesn't have enough value of itself. But anyways, if anything drops 60% from its highs, I have a hard time within the span of what it's been six months and it's down 60%. I during, an, during an inflationary environment. Even if we think long-term there's, that isn't a, I would never use the term hedge for that. Like that's true. Right. So I, think think hedge, people I think be... of a hedge as basically a safety net. Right. That, that hasn't saved any, there's no margin of like, it's been just straight loss of capital. Yeah. Right. Well, Bitcoin Bitcoin predominantly right now, I would say, is not a hedge against inflation. Right. You can't make that case that it is currently doing that. Um, it is a speculative asset. Right? Also like getting to we're getting close to MicroStrategy's margin call price. That's what I was gonna bring up next. Is this all going down because they everyone calculated what MicroStrategy's margin call would be and just whatever is for yeah, I don't know if I really don't know if you can force it down. I don't know how any of the trading works, but 
Well, I do think the closer it gets to the margin call price, which is 21,000, people are afraid of the margin call and probably sell out of fear that it's going to hit that, which increases the selling. Does how much, how many Bitcoins do they have? (laughs) I feel like they have a lot. I actually looked this up the other day because I was curious and it was like at one point a few weeks ago, it was worth $4 billion worth of Bitcoin. Well, I want to know it's how many hilarious they have. to watch like Bitcoin will be down 5%. MicroStrategy is down 25%. Like it's just a lever uh, Bitcoin play. Yeah. Well, I don't know. They were a bubble stock during the dot-com bubble. So anyone that's buying that, I'm sorry. Like fool me once, whatever, whatever that saying is. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. You guys agree? The opposite, but yes. <laughs> or is it the opposite? Sorry. I could never remember any, any sayings. Uh, okay, but I want to talk... I guess we could talk in circles about Bitcoin forever, but and maybe we don't know enough about these stablecoin things, but that... Here's a question. Is this going to warrant a like congressional investigation? Because it was $40 billion in quote-unquote wealth wiped out in weeks. That's a lot, right? <laughs> am, am I crazy in saying that $40 billion? There, some people are upset, I'm assuming. And the developers said they, I don't know, the developers are getting all their hands into it. It feels messy. Like this could be something right, let, that could inspire legal action to regulate this stuff. Let me pose a real question. The, if I have, okay. This whole week has made me think about a few things. First of all, if you're an institution and you're managing money on behalf of others and you decided to start a crypto strategy, I look forward to seeing how people explain that coming out of this. Wow. All right, Ryan, being mean. I guess you're just general. Hey, not, not speaking individually. So I guess, I mean, yeah, criticize what category, but yeah. How, I agree. how are you going to rationalize that to investors? Like, uh, well, it'll be was, hard. <laughs> like, what was the analysis that went behind that? I think my analysis Everyone else is buying it. We bought it. <laughs> my, analysis, my analysis is uh, crypto.com bought the rights to the Staples Center or renamed it to crypto.com arena or whatever it is. And that was literally the day of the top. So Tom Brady was the top. And well, Tom he's Brady also the rise. No, no. That was before then. That was last. That was last spring. But okay. The real question. top was the real top was Matt Damon. Um, Dare to well, fuck. What is it? Dare to be brave. Uh, fortune favors the bold. Fortune favors the brave. Whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. that was the top. And I wonder how old Mister Damon feels about that now. Like, oh, I got about ten million from doing this, but man, uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it looks good anymore. Yeah, ten million dollars to ruin his reputation. The uh, I, it is so. Okay, the story isn't over, obviously. So maybe we're we're like bottom ticking this right now. But it feels like the snowball that was being pushed up the hill. And eventually there just wasn't enough money to keep pushing the snowball up. And now it's kind of broke everyone's legs on the way down. If crypto does, if the entire crypto space whether it's through the stablecoin blowups or 
um, just the slow decline, if that evaporates a bunch of wealth, does that lead to a general recession? Oh, oh, you mean like, uh, okay, so the wealth effect gets totally reversed and people feel like they have less spending power and they're not spending stuff on whatever, a boat. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, 50% of everyone's wealth could have gone to, could, could, like, I'm saying if someone had 50% of their wealth in it and that goes to zero, theoretically, I think spending gets curb stopped. Yeah. But the stock market is still so much larger. And a 20% decline in the S&P, I think, would have a way bigger wealth effect than even if crypto went to zero. You guys follow me there? Or do you do you agree or disagree? Yeah, that's probably right. Ian, any any thoughts? No, I, I think that's probably right. But generally, I think directionally, yeah. Well, Ryan, maybe with crypto, a subset of the population, because it's more focused within... I don't know, maybe Silicon Valley or, or whatever compared to the stock market in general. What, uh, all right. Any other, we've talked crypto for 15 minutes. I think we should probably do something else. Um, if anything, we have a little, not that many people watching, but if you are watching, send in questions in the comments, we'll answer them, whatever. Um, especially because we don't have many people that watch this right now. I guarantee you, we will see your question because the, the feed's not going to be going through too fast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. But I don't know, any other topics this week? Any earnings, guys? Any big stuff? There's a lot of there's a lot of earnings I found interesting. Um, should we talk about the Coinbase or is it just not worth not worth? Nah. I don't know. I have nothing to say. I will say that this is I saw a lot of people referencing the PE, the price to earnings. And then someone was like, Wait, the E can change? <laughs> like, that's a joke. And it's like, it is, I think that's important to think about how many, how many situations right now where we're looking at trailing numbers that are going to be wildly different. Yeah. In the um, coming years. I think, yeah, whenever I see something where a PE, price for cash flow, whatever valuation metric you're looking at, is cheap. I think the the question isn't to ask, oh my God, I should buy. The question you should ask yourself is why are investors valuing this so cheaply? Because there's always a reason. And then if you disagree, maybe it's time to buy. But there's always a reason. And with Coinbase, I think the reason is pretty clear. Um, there was a top in the crypto markets. Also, know. I'm sure I am sure that the big institutions have better interquarter tracking metrics on what Coinbase's revenue is going to look like. Oh, just from data? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like transaction Agreed. data? I agree. 
I agree. I also thought there was not a, I couldn't think of a bigger red flag than when uh, the Coinbase was forced to put that disclosure in their 10Q, the bankruptcy disclosure in the event of bankruptcy. And then the CEO Uh, comes out and says, all right, I know we had to put something in there, but there's, (laughs) don't worry about that. It's getting blown Uh, way out of proportion. All is well. All is well, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'd be nervous. I'd be at, if I had assets in Coibus, I would be, no one's seen this except for the bubble on FinTwit. Like, and I mean, just like the, the FinTwit sphere of people. Um, I don't know. Like, I think I would be out and going I mean, somewhere else. Cause if Schwab did that to me, I'm out. Like I'm going somewhere else. Do you guys agree on that or no? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's insane. Okay. Any other earnings that interest you this week? Uh, well, hold if, on. We got not, a question. We got a question. Right, you wanna, you, yeah, you go ahead and read it. You said in the episode on Brookfield, uh, you, you all seem very skeptical about their weird corporate structure. Do you have similar opinions toward John Malone's Liberty Complex? Yeah, I do. Thank you. Good question, Kevin. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I will say Brookfield, there's a lot of fans. We figured out there are a lot of fans of that company that when we were skeptical, uh, they did not like that, but that is okay. We can agree to disagree. But yeah, I'd say I'm less skeptical about Liberty because it's a little bit more understandable. But the thing about Brookfield was that, and I spent a few hours trying to read their annual report. I got nowhere. The journalist that I read had a great analogy that it's like watching a basketball game with the lights out. That's how I felt reading the annual report. I kind of got nowhere. I think with Liberty, it's a bit different. You can understand what's there if you put in enough work. But... Uh, to be honest, I don't like their assets. So that's just my personal opinion. Okay. That is another, the, the, with Liberty, the assets are more understandable. Yeah. It's hard. The legal structure is complicated also. So that part is similar to Brookfield. That was kind of a yellow flag for me. Um, and it's not even, that is, that could be an advantage, but it's a, it's hard, makes it harder for me to understand. Yeah, um, I mean, they, both companies have phenomenal track records, but it's just personally, it's hard to understand. But the the actual I mean, underlying businesses, like I, I was looking at Brookfield Infrastructure Partners this week. I, I don't really understand those assets nearly as well as I would understand a Sirius XM or um, Formula One, Formula One, or the Braves. Although, <laughs> admittedly, I don't, I'm not interested in owning the Braves. Yeah, baseball teams. <laughs> hey, that's the World Series champion. They race. they won the World Series. I know they talked about it in the comments call once I read it. And I was like, won the, won the World Series. <laughs> I know. Well, no, I don't. Uh, yeah, they won the World Series, and we signed whatever Acuna or whatever you say his name. We have this star, and I'm like, okay, great. What are the margins? <laughs> but no, Liberty's similar, but I think. And both have great track records, like I said before, but it's just complicated and I don't like complication. Simple as that. Right. I think I think what you're doing in those situations, and I would say this is also to some degree, degree true if you're buying Berkshire Hathaway, is you're just putting a lot of faith in the management team. That you're kind of abdicating some of your responsibility towards you know, managing every little aspect and you have to trust that the management team is going to be... Um, is going to make good capital allocation decisions on your behalf, basically. And um, that you're not going to be able to understand everything that's going on. And some of what's going on is going to be obscured from you. And there might be some ways, and I've always thought this with 
this may not be true, but I think with the Liberty complex, I've, I've always been a little bit scared off by some of that, just because it seems like they can move around debt to different entities and you, you're never really owning, even if you're owning like the formula one uh, tracking stock, I'm not quite sure. It, It feels like from what I've, I haven't done a deep dive on it in a long time, but it feels like they can kind of move stuff around in ways that might not necessarily be shareholder friendly. And you just have to kind of trust that they're not going to do that, that they've, that they've got shareholders best interest in mind, um, at least for the most part. And so, you know, I think it's, I don't know. I, I think that there's reasonable um, reasons to invest in those types of things. I, I don't currently in, hold anything like that, but every, whatever stock, whatever public equity you're investing in, it's going to have some level of, of, of obscurity um, or not obscurity, but like, it's going to, you're not going to be able to see everything that's going on, right? You're not a manager of the business. And so um, you don't get complete access to every single line item and understand exactly what's going on in the business. And I think you just have to get whatever you're investing in, you have to get comfortable between what you can see and what you can track and how much you trust management and how good of a track record management has. Uh, great way. To, I think that's a great uh, way to put it. One of the things oh, I've been thinking about, oh, oh, unless you have something else on that, Ryan. No, go ahead, Ian. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is just, well, two things. One is obviously the market has just been crashing, particularly the NASDAQ type stocks have been crashing recently. Um, what now? And it, I haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? And it feels like, it, you know, there's all, all these people talking about, oh, the bottom must be in. We're so close. I was just scrolling through Twitter today and seeing, you know, the fear and greed index is showing up with like a six. So extreme Oof. fear. Um, that is and, but then you start looking at the valuations and they're like, compared to what they were, these are, there's a lot of deals I'm using air quotes in comparison to what it was, but it doesn't seem to be the types of generational buying opportunities that a lot of people are saying, like it could be, you never know what's going to happen going forward. Right. And, and I think as long as you can model it out and you're happy with whatever, you know, your forward returns are based on your analysis, then like, I'm not going to get mad at anybody for buying, but it doesn't quite, you know, there's not, I'm trying to think of like some good examples, but like even Zoom recently, which I, you know, I own some, and I think there's some good cases to be made for Zoom right now. It's trading at 20 times uh, free cash flow approximately. And I think that's market not taking multiple. into Yeah, right. Yeah, right it's trading market. at market multiple, right? And so it's like, okay, yeah, that seems, it seems like that's cheap for a company that has the growth potential that Zoom has um, and maybe, you know, some increased profitability, profitability but it's not like, it's not like it's trading at like five times free cash flow, right? You know, and I don't know if it, it feels like from investors I've talked to in the past that it, in the true, like in the aftermath of the dot com bubble, that there was just that there was stuff like that out there, right? That there were that, that it was really carnage and that, like, I don't know that I can really call what's happened to my portfolio carnage when I would imagine that my overall portfolio is still trading above the market multiple another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Right. <laughs> yeah. The. Okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard to, it's impossible to call the bottom unless you're someone like David Tepper, who seems to have a great knack. and We're not like him. Most people aren't. Maybe someone listening is. Uh, if right. So, and just to be clear, Carlos. I don't think that, <laughs> Like, I don't think that calling the bottom is necessary to be a great investor. Like I was yeah, saying, exactly. you, know, you kind of, if you can, you can model out some kind of forward returns that work and um, not that your models are what's actually going to happen. But if you can get comfortable looking, f- you know, at forward returns, it doesn't really matter if it goes down more in the short term, as long as your long-term assumptions actually play out. But um, here's, here's two indicators I'm seeing. Yeah, that go for it. The great fear and greed index might be a little bit overstated. One. Arc is still getting inflows. That is telling me people are way too optimistic uh, to actually be some sort of capitulation. And two, it seems like everyone is wants everyone else to capitulate. And when I say capitulate, like basically sell out, go to cash or whatever, that's kind of what the definition of capitulating is or puking your portfolio or however you want to define it. It seems like everyone, at least in the Twitter sphere, is saying, Oh, I hope everyone else is capitulating. Oh, is this everyone capitulating? But that does not feel very bullish to me because, and again, I don't care, but that's not how we invest at all. I just, if everyone else wants everyone else to capitulate, that doesn't mean there's much capitulation going on. And it seems like it's just hedge funds like Tiger Global or whoever that are getting liquidated out of their positions. Um, Gosh, I don't know. What do you guys think on that? Like the sentiment doesn't seem drastically bad. Like there's some people that are saying you see the slivers of it. Like, all right, I'm done, or whatever. But it, it cannot be as bad as it was in 2001, 2002, 2009, 73, 32. <laughs> I guarantee you, it's not as bad as 32. But it, it it's interesting what a bear what the bear market psychology actually feels like when you go through it, because it starts with, Hey, like, all right, it's down. I'll buy more. That's like, okay, this is down for a reason. Okay. This is down a ton generational buying opportunity. Okay. Everyone else was right. I, I don't know if this is ownable anymore. And then, and then you've got all these, it, I don't Now I find myself, I kind of have to check my sentiment because I'm feeling more and more bearish with a slow grind down. Like, like it's just going to keep happening when there are like, I don't know, there are discounts or not discounts, but there are good businesses at good prices out there that I would have not even twitched at buying 
last year. Yeah. It's that psychology. It works against everyone or like you can know it's going to happen and it's still going to affect you. We had a good comment here from Patrick that said there was no E back in 2000. What he means is there was no earnings. And what I think I'll take another step further. There wasn't even revenue in a lot of those dot-com companies. I mean, do you guys, but there were, okay, (laughs) but there's a lot of revenue today. That's unprofitable. There's a lot of revenue with bad, bad margins. And there were good, that isn't necessarily true. There are a lot of good businesses, like really good businesses where the future looked sound and the future was sound. Amazon's business looked very bad in 2000. It looked terrible. Okay, sure. Yes, yes. Microsoft, Intel, yes. And you you would have been underwater for 15 years despite great results from there on out. Yeah. Like it can still be wildly overvalued even if they are quality businesses. Did you guys yeah. see the memo or the, the internal slack from one of the Shopify execs? Yeah. We've talked about them on like every show, but they are making a lot of news, I guess. So that I, I wish they would just shut up. I want, okay. <laughs> Cause the stock looks pretty cheap. Yeah. We don't know it. I don't think Ian, you may have, I've, got, option, a, I've got a little bit. It's on a major position. Yeah, we don't own it, so I'm comfortable speaking freely. I mean, it looks cheap right now, but I'm just the management is freaking me out. Yeah, simple. <laughs> big, like the biggest bag holder quotes right now are coming from the management team, and I, all. Like, if they were not talking about the stock so much lately, or why analysts are so wrong, I'd be more uh, inclined to buy it. And they still haven't done a buyback. Well, Ryan, come on. Let's not get delusional here. Oh, it's a buyback. It would still be pretty. Okay, here's the numbers I have, though. They have a lot of cash. They raise a lot of money. They're expected to do, according to Coifin, $5.8 billion in revenue this year. That's after some revenue downgrades. Their market, their enterprise value is still $37 billion. I mean, <laughs> that does not seem that price cheap to me. That does, yeah. <laughs> like the average price to sales. And give they have better margins than most companies, but the average price of sales is about two to two and a half right now for the S and P five hundred. So, uh, do you, people think that either Shopify is going to grow a lot quicker, most likely, or have way better margins than the average S and P five hundred company? Yeah, I'd say that's most likely as well. But you're betting on a very high quality, like you're betting that the business is going to have very very strong margins, even at these prices. But what's crazy is I would never expect it. Like I kind of thought before, and I'm using round numbers before I would think, oh, once it gets down to 10 times sales, I'll think about it. But there's a reason it's gone down to 10 times sales and the opportunity. Man- cost. Well, okay. That's a good point. Opportunity cost is there as well in other companies, but management, I, I don't know. Ian, I'm curious about your take on here too. They're freaking me. Like I said, I guess I already said this. They're freaking me out with the tweets. I want to also say, uh, and I'll let Ian kind of answer that. I want to say that this is where I actually have some a plum for Elon because he knew it was when when the bull market was raging in 2020. He at multiple points was he at one point it was a meme of it's not you it's it, it or it's not the bull market it's really you to like other executives. And no one else, no one else <laughs> talked about the stock when it was absurdly overvalued, but now they're complaining about the stock and analysts when it's insanely undervalued. Like 
you, you kind of got to do it both ways. Like you got to really be tempering expectations. Yeah. Agreed. Ian, what, yeah, sorry, I, what, what did you think about the Shopify stuff? Yeah, I think the, well, to pro- provide a couple of numbers real quick, it topped out in 2021 at a high of about 72 times uh, revenue. <laughs> Today it's at about seven sorry, times I'm revenue. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go, go ahead. I'm but sorry. yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's pr- pretty wild numbers, right? To get to 72 times revenue, um, trailing revenue. And today be at seven times trailing revenue. That's a, that's a big decline, right? Um, it brings <laughs> up another point I wanted to talk about at some point, but when you have these things that are down 90%, um, you know, 70% even, like I would imagine that out of a, and I think this happened coming out of the 2000s, things that were down 70, 80, 90%. Um, a lot of those things are never going to actually get back up to the previous levels. And there's going to be maybe if you had a basket of 20 of them, maybe maybe two or three of those 20 that have declined 70%, maybe two or three of them, if, if you're lucky, get back above what their highs. I don't know. You know, that's that's something I want to discuss, get your guys' opinion yeah, well, in a second. But first okay. I'll say, as far as the Shopify stuff, just to kind of close the book there, I think the most concerning thing to me about the management team is when they start going after analysts, because that's not really, especially a, a company that. that's the size of Shopify. Like if you're a micro cap and you want to say, hey, analysts are misvaluing us and here's how you should value us. And you're actively like as a micro cap or a small cap, you need to raise money and it really has an impact on you. And you can make a case for why they're misvaluing you, then then go for it. As the as the CEO of a you know 30, 40 billion dollar company, going after the sell side analysts because you think they're it just it seems like it's not the thing I want my management team focused on at that point. Like <laughs> you have plenty of money, you're not trying to raise like maybe the stock price is affecting your ability to hire to some extent, but, but you know, that really shouldn't be affecting your ability to hire that much. Um, if you're doing, you know, like, especially in a market like this, where everything's going down, people, people understand that I think in the, in the labor market. So you just have to, no, I don't think like, they I, do, Ian. I don't think they do. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You don't think, you don't think people in the, in the labor market, like when they're looking at when, what, what I'm trying to say is that if I'm, picking a job and I'm deciding between, you know, Shopify, Stripe, um, as a developer, I want to pick between Shopify, Stripe, Twilio, and I'm seeing all these, you know, valuations coming way down that like, they're going to pick one of those places anyways. You know what I mean? Like they're not, and maybe they decide to go to Google, right? Maybe Google becomes more attractive because people see it as a steadier option, but I don't think there's, I think in a market like this where the stock prices have come down on everything, I don't think it has a huge effect on hiring, but I could be wrong. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. I got a novel idea for you guys. I want to see if you have any thoughts here. This could be... I don't know if anyone's ever thought of this before. Paying people in cash. I knew you were going to say that. 
I know you guys know I talk about this every time, but well, this well, is important. How, what do we think about this? Paying people in cash, and all seriousness, when the stock goes down, you're, you're levered. Your compensation is leveraged to your stock price. Yeah, yeah. This is actually a really. This is. It's such a. There's so much more momentum than I thought. That's involved with stock-based compensation because I saw it with Unity's report. There's no reason that this needed to happen, but their stock-based compensation jumped more than 60%. Sales jumped 33%. And they did not hire that much more people. Like like hiring was not, there was not 60% growth in headcount. So, and I was looking for a tweet on it, but people are asking, if your bonus gets cut in half from last year, because you're getting awarded the same the same amount of shares. Apparently, employees are outraged and they're requiring more stock. I mean, we saw we're about to do a not so deep dive recording on Pinterest as a little revisited episode from a year ago because of the stocks down so much. Kind of be a fun one, and I'm the one that kind of looks at the option stuff for the show research, and they have like 50 million shares outstanding, or sorry, 50 million options and RSUs outstanding. That's pretty heavy and it's been high, but their pace had been a bit lower. But then I see a subsequent event in their 10Q and they just did a $25 million, 25 million share um, RSU grant. I don't know who it was to. Maybe I didn't look at the proxy, but I'm assuming it was to a lot of different employees. Um, if it was just the executive team, that is um, a sick move, like not a good, like it, it's a terrible move, very selfish to do. But that's worth like $570 million at the price it was granted at. And that's going to be some heavy dilution. And I think it's because they need to retain their employees. And for someone like Pinterest, if I remember looking back, well, I do remember because I looked back at our notes from the episode we did in early summer last year, they were really, really heavy on their SBC. And that works well when your stock was going to the moon and it looks good and employees are happy. But now that their stock's down 80%, I don't have the numbers. I think it's down like 80%. The Slack channels are filled talking about the stock. You got to grant a lot more. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. But man, that's not good for outside shareholders. How do, yeah, how do the employees feel? What do you think it does to employee morale? Because I always hear the argument that they're better incentivized. I got a feeling employee morale isn't very good when their net worth is being wiped out and their bonus from last year was cut in half. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you're <laughs> in cash, we won't have that problem. <laughs> Here's a, a, I like to do this if I get, if I think like if I kind of look at a 10Q or whatever and I'm like, oh, that options outstanding is very high. Take it. And this is a good exercise to do divide the options or RSUs, whatever, the total dilutive securities outstanding, excluding maybe warrants um, and convertible notes, and divide them by the total employee count. If you're getting a really, really high number, maybe there's a lot of leverage. Uh, on that stock price that you're not maybe thinking about. Because some companies are really, really high. Like Pinterest only has, I believe, 3,500 employees and they got now 75 million dilutive security outstanding to those employees. Now, a lot of that's probably the executive team, but that's a lot per employee. And man, for, minus, for minus 9% user growth. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't need to get into that episode before we do it, but I mean, just as an example, yeah. Uh, they don't man. grant it. That okay? That's the biggest irritation for me. 
is the grant, the granting of stock isn't because, isn't a reward often. It's because they have to. Well, they feel like they have to. Yeah. Or I, I guess if you're on profit, once you, you start, it's really hard to, to stop. Yeah. It's a disease. It's, it's a, it's a disease. Uh, Especially when that becomes a, like, I think I heard someone say it like during bear markets, SBC can either become way more dilutive or it becomes a cash expense, which is going to hurt a lot of companies' cash flow. Yeah. The, I wish companies, because look, we're, we're complaining about this. And I'm sure you'll compl- hear us complain about it in other power hours, but it's a part of the market. And we invest in companies that do this bullshit. And I just wish more companies would think individually or not individual, like originally, you know what I mean? And kind of think for themselves because it's, we've gone through each week we research a new company. Ian, you've been doing one every other week uh, as a part of the show. And the patterns you recognize in compensation and everything, it's all the same. And I just wish people would act more like a constellation software and do something where, I don't know, unique makes sense for the business you have and just is just not just doing what everyone else is doing. If you guys got to get what I mean there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think in my opinion, I understand why people grant stock, especially um, like in private companies and early stage companies, you're trying to like getting you know, when you're, when you're one of the first 10 or even hundred or maybe even 500 employees, um, granting stock options as you're trying to conserve cash for other things. And you're trying to incentivize people who are part of a small team. I think it makes sense. I think once we get to the level of a public company that, um, has thousands of employees and has plenty of cash to actually just pay people, right. Um, that, that it makes less sense. I think one of the hard things that I will say is for companies is when do you make that transition, right? If you've had this culture of granting stock options, what's the day when you, when you say, well, now we're just going to be giving people cash and you can buy, you know, the stock on your own. I think one of the best solutions maybe, and maybe there's some issues with this that I haven't thought about, but I've, I can't remember which company does this, but I've seen it a few places, I think where companies will um, pay people in cash and then provide like stock purchase programs if people want to participate where they'll at give a, a, at a 10% yeah at a 10% discount right exactly where yeah. they'll let people kind of buy the stock and i feel like that does maybe provide some inc- a little bit of incentive or incentivizes people a little bit because even at a, at a large stage public company because it's a decision that they're making right they're saying hey i'm going to take this cash i'm getting a little bit of a discount on um buying the stock and uh you know, let's, I'm going to, I, I believe in the company. I'm going to make this affirmative stance that I actually want to be a, an owner of this company I work for. Um, so I don't know, that seems to me to be the best of both worlds where you can give people a little bit of, um, a little additional perk of the job while still letting people ultimately make that decision on their own. And it's just, you, and it uh, keeps it simpler, I think, because it's actually just straight shares rather than these options, which the options are great, but um, when it's when it's options, uh, you know, when you have the strike prices involved, and you have when you have to exercise them, and you know, take out a loan to exercise them or whatever, right? There's just some added complication there that I think um, makes them a little less employee friendly. What uh, what earnings reports have you guys read this week? Any 
Any that are worth. <laughs> I guess I'll keep it from stuff that we don't own. I thought the Callaway report was interesting. We just recorded a deep dive with Green Bull Capital on that. I thought it was quite interesting. Ian, you may you've been following that one. I mean, did you read that report too? I, I love. I think Top Golf saying venue sales are looking fantastic. Margins are to be determined, but and they got a lot of debt. But man, it looks it's interesting. That I think they're executing well. Yeah, I would agree. I think they continue to be <laughs> extremely popular. The Top Golf piece of it, it continues to be extremely popular and that it is clear that there's still growth runway there. Um, and it's just, like you said, the big question is where do margins ultimately come out on this thing? Um, some, this is anecdotal evidence, but there's one that opened up right next to um, where I went to school in Loyola Marymount and El Segundo. And uh, from my friends who are out there have been saying, it's just like four or five hour waits um, to, to get in basically every day. So I think, and I think that's the first one in LA. So, you know, it seems, you know, they, they seem to be moving on the right track and, and it's just going to be like, like you were saying, it's ultimately going to be about margins, right? Where do margins come out? But I think they've got a, a winning concept here. Those wait times. <laughs> Breaking news, Top Golf is popular and I think it will be popular. <laughs> yeah. People spend a lot of money I'll on Top Golf. That yeah. the, the wait times kind of indicate to me that they may have, quite a bit of pricing power, even though people shell out a lot of money with a party at those things. It feels like given the demand, they have pricing power. Yeah, I think it's pricing power, but it's also, I think that also indicates the growth potential because they could they could raise prices and improve margins and all those types of things. And they might do that. Um, but they can also, like in Phoenix in the last couple of years, they started with one in Phoenix way out east. Now, a couple of years later, they've got three. Um, the, I so think LA, they could have six, right? Potentially, they're, yeah. they're, it seems like I, I wondered when they first built these whether it was going to be like one per city, maybe two per city. That that was going to have, you know, that was going to fulfill capacity. But it seems like there's a lot more demand for this than um, that I might have initially anticipated. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I read coupon. Coupon was good. I read some smack that, that we, uh, I was looking at called uh, Latch. I think we did a show on them. And I've been following them for a while, but man, they disappointed. Like, I don't know. They can't get their revenue going. I guess that's the the perils of investing in something. And I never, I've never bought or sold any uh, any of that stock. But that's the perils of investing in something that's either pre revenue or basically pre revenue at like ten million dollars in revenue. There's a lot of uncertainty, <laughs> and I guess a lot of people are learning that, learning that lesson. What were what were the highlights and lowlights on coupon? Highlights: margin expansion, 450 basis points, which is quite impressive, going from like I believe 17 percent to 20 and a half percent, which is great. Do you say on coupon or Q1? Coupon. Oh, coupon. I thought you said highlights and lowlights on Q1. <laughs> Q1. <laughs> Uh, another one that I thought was good, they were able to, uh, get their active customers back up and the spend per active customer, uh, was increasing as well. Uh, but I would say them, and they were for the first time ever, even up positive on their core product business. So 
most of the losses are coming from their extra investments in international markets and like coupon eats and coupon play or some of the fintech initiatives. Yeah, I thought that was a good report. I haven't read the call. They don't give out much info, which is disappointing for a company that is international. I would like more information on their very scarce on doing uh, analyst conferences, investment presentations, whatever. But I don't know. It looks like a good looks like a good report. Any? What about this? Any bad reports from anyone that you saw besides Coinbase? I know that. Peloton. Did you guys? Uh, Ian, you looked at that one. I didn't look at the report. Yeah, I looked at that one a little bit. Let me. See. I'm going to pull up the numbers here because it was it was pretty brutal. What um, happened to Upstart's report to cause it to drop fifty percent? Because I didn't take a look. The guidance for the full year revenue was they dropped it by one hundred fifty million. From they, what, like one point five billion? It was one point. I want to say it was one point four to one point two five. Um, that warrants a 50% drop, I guess in this market, not surprising. And, and they were holding more loans on their own balance sheet. So they weren't, okay. able, they weren't able to offload them to the banks as much. Well, let me pull up the investor presentation. I'm sure that's not biased in their favor. They, um, uh, I think the worry here is that they're tied to, everyone thinks they're way more tied to the credit cycle than initially thought. And it, uh, it, maybe these banks aren't aren't quite as receptive to some of these new upstart loans since so much are being held on, since more and more are being held on upstarts balance sheet. Well, that would be uh, they are not they're not able to offload them as well. Yeah, yeah it looks like growth stalled from Q4. Yeah, look at that chart there. I mean, they're still profitable, so borrowers are up. Well, I probably don't know what I'm talking about. Just looking at it here. Credit union partners are up. It's uh, well, there's a lot of people that know it a lot better than us. But that according, I mean, just looking at that, and that's just the investor presentation. I mean, fifty percent. That isn't. That seems a bit much. Yeah, I think. <laughs> the. Uh... I mean, what are they do? They're at two point. Oh my God, they're at a two point seven billion dollar market cap now. Wasn't that at like twenty five billion? In late last year, Something I mean, this like is. That, I think. My God. I All right, sorry. Let's go to. People are worried about the loans. Yeah, true. It, it could, yeah. Which was not I, a problem when you were when you were if you were able to offload them all to the banks, but if you're holding them now and the banks won't take them. I guess that could be yeah. Like that could be a huge bottleneck. Um, okay, Peloton earnings. Ian, tell me, let's look at a good company. What's <laughs> this is a company firing on all cylinders, right? Yeah, so this is the first first earnings report under uh, new CEO Barry McCarthy. Um, basically, growth was uh, revenue fell twenty four percent from last year, which was um, which was mostly a result of uh, product sales being down significantly. So the product's revenue was down 42% year over year, which to their credit, and their credit is probably the wrong terminology, but in their defense, um, they have said that they're trying to shift more towards subscription revenue, but it looks like they're trying to shift more towards subscription revenue largely because they have to. Um, Subscription revenue was up 55% year over year. So that's pretty good. 
that's pretty good. Yeah. And it's just a question of whether that'll continue to, to, to develop like that. Um, subscription gross margin was, uh, up 20 basis points quarter over quarter, 360 basis points year over year. Um, how much cash the are they connected? Losing? Sorry. Or, I, I just want to know how much cash they're losing. Yep. So free cash flow, and this is using their number. I'm going to assume it's close enough, but free cash flow was uh, they lost basically $750 million. So mm. lots of burn. Um, uh, don't you think this business <laughs> should be easier to run? I have no. Sorry. What did you say, Ryan? Don't you think the business should be easier to run? Okay, here's what the CEO said. McCarthy said in a CNBC article or some sort of report, and maybe it was on the conference call, they were just quoting him. He was like, there's three or four things here that I was a bit surprised were going on. So I think he was a bit shocked about how poorly run it was. And I'm going to make a statement here. I think Peloton is way closer than we work than people think. Foley, well, they could turn it around. I think it's honestly is the the path isn't that different. It was just a public company. Foley did almost the same exact moves as Newman, buying the house on margin. That's the core one, like trying to become some sort of celebrity. Another one, uh, trying to pump up the stock. Whatever. I feel so much. It feels very similar to WeWork. Do you guys looking at Peloton's? business now do you agree or disagree i think i think fully it's similar. hard to call anything <laughs> the level that we work was at we work still um, hey we work is still a, a functioning business so functioning well, peloton's still a functioning business too to some extent they they burned mm-hmm. 750 million dollars in the last quarter or whatever <laughs> um but What's that burn i just from? i think what some of the things that adam newman was doing i think it's hard to compare like, I don't know what's all of what Foley's oh, doing, but the Peloton output park is not that much less absurd than the surfboard company. The Peloton output park, come on. The, the <laughs> I mean, just I'm laughing at that now. Like, yeah, that was ridiculous. Is there any way, Ian, in your opinion, is there any way that they can generate cash? Like, why are, why are they losing so much money? Um, I think it's, I think it's largely due to bad inventory management in a lot of ways is that they just they built too much they thought they were writing this high of people using it for years and years and years and i think their products were too expensive as well like both in terms of what they were charging people and in how much they were costing um and that's going to be the big question is if they can get these like that was one of the things that people were really worried about is in the quarter um the gross margin on the products went from like last year in the third quarter, they they're on a different fiscal year, but last year in the third quarter, their gross margin on products was 28%. This year it was negative 11%. They're losing. Yeah. Negative. And so if they can get that somewhere around break even, and then they can keep growing the subscription business, then yeah, they can be cat, you know, they can be cash flow. They can generate cash flow. The problem is, um, I think they're, and McCarthy said it, that they're thinly capitalized for a business of our scale is I think his quote. 
Um, they got Again, 879 think- million dollars, and they just signed um, a binding commitment letter with J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs for a 750 million dollar loan. So they're trying to raise money now, and it's like a sad thing is when their stock price was about. 10 times this, they probably should have been doing some convertible notes. And I think they do have some convertible notes. They did. They, they did. But remember they said, oh, we don't need to raise money. We don't need to raise money. <laughs> right. And I think it's nice to hear him come in. And it also just goes to show how stupid that statement was before that he comes in and goes, we're thinly capitalized versus the other people, uh, the former, or I don't know, that CFO may actually still be around. I'm trying to remember now. If she, but, I think it's, if she's still around, I mean, what are, what are they doing? Like, yeah, I can't imagine if she is like, I can't imagine she's going to be around for long, but um, I feel like the end state is similar to Roku where they right size hardware costs and the subscription has to become a much bigger part of the business. We've got yeah, some, but like some positive things out of it is that they um, like, this is another negative actually is the churn, the churn increased a little bit, but their connected fitness workouts were up and average monthly workouts per subscription was up slightly quarter over quarter. It was down um, uh, year over year, but it was up quarter over quarter to about 18.8 versus 15.5 in the previous quarter, which has been a thing that people have been harping on is, oh, people are using this less and less. There's no one going to use it. I think there's a chance that people do use these. I think it just is a matter of getting that product gross margin at least to zero and hopefully a little bit positive and then um just growing the the connected fitness subscriptions but i don't know they've got a lot of a lot of work to do no doubt we've got one question in the chat that uh achilles asked what's a reasonable price to sales in your opinion for enterprise software as a service companies you guys want to take that yeah i can take that it depends i definitely you got to take it on a case by case basis. So let me go two different examples. Okay, one of the best, I guess, is Adobe. They're they're enterprise plus consumer software, but Adobe has, and I haven't looked at their numbers recently, but let's say hypothetically they have ninety percent gross margins. Yeah, I, I think the best way you got to do is work work down the income statement. Ninety percent gross margins. Okay, you're starting it there with your gross profit number. Typically, you've got about 10% on GNA, maybe at a company their size, it's like 8%, something like that. But let's say they're at 10% on GNA, which is general administrative, you're down to 80% left. Now you have 80% of gross profit dollars to spend on R&D and sales and marketing, SBC, whatever. With something like that, where people are attached to it and they're coming to you to buy, you don't have a giant direct sales force going out to people. You can assume with something like that, your sales and marketing spend as a percentage of revenue might be closer to 20. And again, Adobe's could be higher than this, but I doubt it given their operating margins. Uh, it's probably closer to like 20%. And that moves you maybe down to 60% of your gross profit dollars, or excuse me, of your revenue is left as profit. And then lastly, you have R&D, which is basically all your CapEx for a software company. For a company like Adobe, I'm assuming it's like 20% as well. And that goes you gets you down to a 40% operating margin or free cash flow margin or whatever you want to define it, okay, that company probably deserves a price to sales, depending on how qual- how high quality you think their mode is and their runway for growth. Uh, probably like 10 or 12, at least. That seems very reasonable for someone like Adobe, and that's where they've traded at in the past. But conversely, and maybe I'm having a hard time thinking of an example here, okay, let me, but someone let me with a giant interrupt. direct sales force... All right, or, uh, interrupt me. So first of all, in Adobe's case, 
It's 45% operating cash flow margins. Um, uh, right. Pretty close. There you go. Yeah. Right around that. Every enterprise SaaS kind of gets bottled into one big thing, but each one of them has a different cost structure. And also what, I mean, I would pay attention to, to answer your question, what price to sales does a company deserve to trade at? It depends on the return that you want. Essentially. Well, that's true as well. That's true as well. But that's that's one of the variables. Also, the example I wanted to give, and this is a hypothetical because I think there's plenty of out there, but I can't think of it a specific one. Someone that needs a giant direct sales staff, someone that needs to spend 40% of their revenue on sales and marketing, if they have the same gross margins as an Adobe, and especially if their gross margins are lower, like 75%, they're not going to have those margins and they deserve a lower price of sales. And the biggest, really one of the biggest advantages is whether or not someone can offer a competing service. In Adobe's case, no one can offer what they offer, especially when bundled together. So when you think about those applications, there isn't, they don't have to compete on price, which means their margins are going to be higher, which means they should command a higher multiple potentially. Um, Other businesses, even though it could be software as a service, Sprout Social is one that comes to mind. So Sprout Social offers social media management solutions. It allows you to view all your likes, um, view your comments. You can post something uh, and manage basically all of your Twitter presence, Instagram presence, if you're a big business. Things like that don't quite have nearly as high of barriers to build a substitute product as Ansys's simulation software. So I think businesses like that deserve a higher multiple because it's more durable. Yeah, but that's a, that, that one's on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, but specifically the one you can take home on any of them is to look at what they're spending on their operating expense line. I think that's really something anyone getting started out in can... Under, like Because what you're talking about, Ryan, is super important, but I think it's something very, very difficult to kind of go through. And it's something, I mean, I'm sure we'll be trying to figure out for the rest of our investing careers. Oh. But the operating expense line is something anyone can understand. It's pretty simple. And like you can, I don't know, it can help you understand what sort of margins you should expect or what you need to expect at the current share price. And if you've had, I guess, if you've been able to have really high operating margins or profit margins, however you measure that, whether it's operating cash flow earnings, for a sustained period of time, you probably don't have any viable competitors. That's true. But, huh? I mean, Adobe's had what, 40% operating margins for the last 10 years? They've, they got competitors, though. They got competitors. Canva. Canva's a competitor. I don't know. Yeah, but not across the entire creative suite. Like, if you can bundle Illustrator, Photoshop, and Premiere. That's true. I don't know the business that well. No but, one's going to churn. Yeah. I think in general, that's the rule. And that's definitely, you know, whatever. The When there's the margin, capitalism competes it away. But there's some industries that have had high ones where there's high competition. I mean, video games, competition's been pretty fierce and all their margins are quite high. So that one always confounds me when people say that capitalism competes it away because video game stocks beg to differ. I don't know. Does that make sense, guys? Or am I speaking out of my ass here? I mean, but the, even those have sustainable competitive advantages. Some of them. Yeah, but they have competition. 
like fierce competition spending billions of dollars. Yeah, but it's not they're not necessarily competing for the same direct customers. Like I don't think EA with FIFA competes for the same customers as Call of Duty. Eh. I don't know. Uh hard to tell. Yeah. No, no answer. <laughs> and what what price of sales does a enterprise SaaS company deserve to trade at? It's all at 10, right? Every single one. Ian's gonna come in and say 10. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think you guys covered um kind of some of the things to consider. One of the things I always like just to kind of keep it simple is um basically what do you think it's gonna generate free cash flow at maturity? And some of the companies, some of these enterprise SaaS companies are at maturity or close to maturity. And so you can actually just value it on a price to free cash flow multiple, which I much prefer doing. Um and uh or EV to free cash flow. Um, but if you can't, then I like to come in and kind of see, okay, what's what's their free cash flow margins going to be based on some things that are kind of similar to them so I can get a ballpark and then I'll value it on a price to free cash flow multiple. And so if it's, you know, assuming a market multiple somewhere between 20 and 25 times, if you think the business is particularly durable, valuing it above 25 times on a free cash flow multiple basis is, uh, I think, reasonable. If you think that the, if you think there's a lot of risks in the business, then whether it's the the current free cash flow multiple or what you're projecting the free cash flow multiple will be, I think you want to have it at a discount to that. And I think the best way to kind of visualize that a lot of times is to use free cash flow yield, which is just flipping the equation around and seeing, okay, for every dollar I invest in this, what percentage um, do I get back in free cash flow basically? And now sometimes that free cash flow is going to get reinvested into the business and hopefully the business is doing a good job of that and you're getting good returns on that capital, or it's giving it to you in the form of share buybacks or dividends. And so then you can start to see how the, the company, what percentage you're getting, uh, um, hopefully above the the yield on like a risk-free investment, like a treasury. Um, but then you can kind of, you can compare the yield that you're currently getting. So the free cash flow you're getting per dollar you invested, and you can start um kind of projecting out what you think the growth will be in that company. And you can get a pretty good estimation of what your return is going to be going forward. And so by combining the current yield with, um, uh, with your, with your growth rate going forward, you can start to kind of get an idea about the, uh, the projected, um, you know, some people call it like the free cash flow total return. So you can start to kind of get an idea. The other, the other exercise I'll do is, okay, if I hold, um, the free cash flow multiple constant, the free cash flow yield constant, basically the growth in free cash flow will be my return. And so um, getting a little bit of a sense of that, just that, that helps me out too, is trying to limit as many variables as possible um, when I'm doing this. And so, and kind of getting an idea, an idea about what, what return is. So in terms of, <laughs> um, I, Ian, I, I hate to, cut you off but we do have to end here soon because we went over our time but it's yep. a good lesson though good uh thank <laughs> this you is, this, no, this is good <laughs> thank you professor <laughs> yeah going back to my tutoring days but i'll just say this to close i think that when you're asking about what a reasonable price to sales is for enterprise SaaS companies it's going to be heavily dependent on a lot of factors and the best way to um figure it out is tr- to trying to limit those factors to as few things as possible where you can understand it because anybody can understand um, you know, a multiple 
on on free cash flow and how much business how much money a, a business is currently generating or you expect it to generate um and kind of getting to a comfortable place where you see hey and you'll hear us do this in our deep dive episodes you've got 100 you know 100 million in free cash flow today if we think it can do 500 million in free cash flow 5 years from now and we'll give it a market multiple at that point then you know we'll throw on 20 times 500 million get to a 10 billion dollar market cap and it's a currently at a $5 billion market cap, we've got a double in five years. And are you happy with that? Or are you not happy with it? And just trying to kind of boil it down to those types of numbers. Not that you're ever going to predict it exactly right, but just that you can um, start to get a frame of reference for, for what different numbers will mean and what different assumptions mean. So that'll, that'll uh, conclude my lesson for today. Right. <laughs> I, I just slap a 15 times sales multiple, right? That's, that's valuation mark. Professor Gray, class in session. Well, that's got to do it uh, for us on the Power Hour. Do we throw disclosures on these? Yeah, if you want. Well, probably we're, smart. Uh, we're not financial advisors, so anything we say or discuss is not formal advice. Uh, we are general partners at Arch Capital, though, so clients may hold uh, positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>